Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today's guest is Garrett Wankowski. He is a veteran of Orange County Fire Rescue. He currently serves as a battalion chief. Um, you were hired in 1998, uh, April of 1998, so you've got essentially 20, 22 years on. Mm -hmm. um, and you serve as the team leader for Task Force 4, uh, the urban search and rescue team um, in Central Florida. It's a state asset, a regional asset. Uh, right now, what that means, you've got, you know, you're the team leader. So you're managing groups from Seminole County Fire Rescue, Osceola County Fire Rescue, Orange County Fire Rescue, uh, City of Orlando, but Osceola County, St. Cloud, Kissimmee, they all have people that are on the team, but they, they don't necessarily represent one of the big three that make up the team, correct? Right. Yeah, we've got, we've got a, about 100 and between 120, 130 members on the team, um, made up from about 10 different departments. Uh, the big three, you know, Orange County, Seminole County, Orlando. Um, I'm Orange County's task force leader. We have a task force leader from each department. So we have a three platoon rotation. Um, so we just rotate between the three of us who goes as the actual task force leader. And, uh, and it works out pretty well. We've got members from Claremont, from Lake County, uh, Kissimmee, uh, Martin County, um, uh, I think we have one from St. Cloud. Uh, I think we have one from Melbourne. Um, so, so a little bit here and there. And how long have you been uh, a part of Task Force 4? I was one of the original members back in 2003 when we started. Uh, you know, the, they, they, they increased after, after Hurricane uh, uh, Andrews when pretty much the whole USAR team thing started. Uh, they created all the federal teams, and and I think we've got 28 federal teams right now. Uh, two of them are in South Florida, Miami, and, and uh, Miami Dade, and then we've got six other teams uh, in the state of Florida that are state teams. And uh, as far as as far as it's concerned, in the state of Florida, um, Miami and Miami Dade are considered state teams first, if if it happens in the state of Florida. And after 9-11, there, uh, there was quite a bit of funding. Yeah, and 9-11 is what really opened the door for all the state teams. Um, so uh, they recognized the need for that. And, and then they started putting everything together and started getting a, a lots of grant money between the, uh, you know, the state Homeland Security and Urban Area Initiative. Uh, those two grants pretty much funded all the USAR teams 
what I've seen from Orange County is sort of a direct pathway from special operations onto the USAR team. You've been involved with special ops. Was it probably right around the same time that all yeah. that, that you went into special ops? Yeah, when uh, I was actually on duty on 9-11 and um, they, they put our squad forward to service that day uh, just in response to that. And originally that was just a manpower unit. And then when they started um, to train everybody to the technician level, uh, I transferred over to that station 83 that it was at and uh, got all the training and they finally teched that truck out. Across the United States, typically a squad is like a manpower unit, but in, in Central Florida, <clears throat> a squad is, you know, a specialty unit. Uh, the city of Orlando, they've got a heavy, a heavy rescue, and that's essentially what squad one. Yeah, they have different names for it. It's, you know, the heavy rescue. Um, I've heard them called heavy squads. Uh, you know, pretty much special operations does pretty much the same thing around the country. The one thing that, that uh, kind of sets us apart from a lot of the other heavy rescues and heavy squads and whatever in the country is, is that we also do hazmat in addition to all the other technical uh, rescue disciplines. So, you know, we're, we're kind of a jack of all trades kind of a thing uh, where a lot of, you know, a lot of other departments, they separate hazmat from the technical rescue side. In, uh, in special operations in Orange County, it used to be all the, the squad technicians were public safety rescue divers. And I don't remember the year that the dive team was disbanded, but it, it was uh, reformed um, in the last five, six years. Um, and now it's more of a county-wide uh, mm -hmm. type of deployment model rather than just divers on the, the three units. Yeah, I think um, we have like 171 divers. And I know that quite a few of the, the squad technicians are divers, so um, just however, however the units are um, dispatched on a particular call. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the qualifications or, you know, the training that goes into becoming a squad technician in Orange County? Um, you've got to have two years on the department. I think we lowered that. A little bit it used to be free um, a lot of the times in, you know other departments you usually get your most senior people on those on those trucks uh, which is the case with us as well um, at, at some point because it's a very cyclical um, one of the things that you have is the people on these units are pretty motivated so we usually get a lot of promotions um, out of our program so we, we have a hard time actually keeping firefighters, you know, on the squad just because they're aggressive and, and they do want to get promoted. So uh, that's, you know, we try and, and get to the recruits early and say, hey, you know, we want to go to, you know, a lot of the really cool stuff and, and go to a, and do a bunch of training, do training that nobody else gets to do. And, you know, this is, this is right up your alley. So we, we hit them early 
And, um, you know, their first, their first couple years in the department now, um, they got a lot to do because our department requires you become a paramedic in three years. So um, where we used to start preparing, you know, new hires for, you know, taking special ops classes for the, the truck companies and then eventually for the squad companies. Um, now they got to worry about doing their, their first year orientation stuff and then roll right into paramedic school um, and then get precepted and become a paramedic within their first three years. So following that, you know, now we, I always recommend that, you know, if you have time in between any of that, you know, knock a couple of these classes out. You know, the, the, the two classes that I highly recommend to anybody in the fire service right off the bat, as far as uh, special operations level technician classes is vehicle machinery. You know, I take the operations level and then the technician level. And uh, because you know, we do extrications, besides hazmat, extrications are probably the second most you know, technical rescue that we go to. So, but that's something that everybody in every fire department needs to know how to do. So I highly recommend that all the firefighters go and get that one. And then uh, rope rescues, the next one that I, because not only are they uh, useful as far as getting on truck companies and whatnot, but they're also pretty cheap compared to the other classes uh, like structure collapse and hazmat. Those are much longer and much more expensive. So recommend those two classes. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to be assigned to one of these special operations stations, uh, the department will usually send you to these classes. Um, if not, then you've got to get some of these on your own and, and show that, uh, you know, you, you kind of want to be on the, in the program. So uh, then you go take confined space, trench rescue, and then the last two that usually takes is the structural collapse and then the hazmat. So that's just the tech classes. That's just to get you qualified to even walk through the door um, to the program. Because uh, then you have to apply and, and, and get accepted into our squad academy that we do. So pretty much after you take all the classes, you know, people can take these classes all over the place. So there is a different, you know, you're learning the core, you know, skills that you need for these classes. Uh, but in order to put everybody on the same page, you know, we'll, we put on a, uh, a squad academy at least once a year, sometimes twice a year where we'll take, uh, you know, a whole bunch of firefighters mixed in with some engineers and, and lieutenants, uh, but mostly firefighters. And then we'll run them through this six week academy and pretty much go over every single discipline that we do. We do six disciplines, uh, the sixth one being hazmat. And then, you know, it just, we show them how we do it here in Orange County. Um, and then the, uh, the testing that follows that it's it's grueling you know it is everybody that goes through it says it's the hardest thing that they've ever gone through in the fire service as far as because there's just so much information to retain and we give you know at the end you know we do a testing process um, for that after the academy where they have a written test and then they also have a practical test on every single discipline uh, and they have to pass all of that in order to be checked off as squad qualified. And, and after, uh, after they complete that and pass that, 
then uh, represent them with the uh, our our eagle, our, our squad pin. So that it means a whole lot to people. Do you have one? Do you have your pin that you could show? No, nah, it's on my uniform back at the station. Um, I mean, it's 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 an eagle. It's you know, it's it's got you know hazmat and, and some of the disciplines on it. You know, very similar to uh, to the uh, the Navy SEALs uh, eagle, but it's modified. You know, for us, we're not going to just take their stuff. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned it. You've got your bachelor's degree from UCF in uh, criminal justice. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm guessing at some point you wanted to be a cop. Nope. No, I just I was going to school. I think originally for nursing, and uh, my my grades when I, my first couple semesters in college uh, weren't as good as they should have been. And uh, you know, they actually, um, I had a friend at UCF that had a 4.0 that did not get into their nursing program. So I'm like, well, I'm not getting in with what I got. <laughs> so I went looking for uh, something else, but I mean, those classes really uh, interested me. Um, I, just, I just wanted to get a degree, you know, do something. Uh, but I had no intentions on ever doing anything with that because by the time I was going to UCF, I was already hired with the fire department. So, so you were you were working full time in the fire department and going yeah. to school there. Yep. Cool. I believe it was 2012, 2013. You and I uh, started collaborating, uh, developing uh, Orange County's leadership development program. Mm -hmm. um, it was you, uh, Derek Allegood, myself, and, and a couple other people. But you and you and Derek were the primary go-to guys, the lead instructors for about as long as the uh, the program has been in existence. Can you uh, can you talk a little bit about your personal leadership philosophy and how how it came about that you've really developed as a leader maybe some of your influences well y'all have to you always have to work for a good array of people um, obviously it helps when you work for really quality officers and leaders um, but I it also helps if you work for some that are not so good because it also shows you what not to do and what doesn't work so that's just as important as working for you know, for people that do a really good job and, and know their stuff and, and are good, solid leaders, you, you just as you get a little bit of that diversity. It really, really helps. Myself, I, I never really thought it was a hard formula as far as, as being an officer is I just took everything that I ever liked about, you know, all, all the lieutenants and chiefs that I've worked for. I took every quality that I really thought you should have that I respected because I asked myself, why do I follow this person? You know, and I just took all of those, those characteristics and I tried to put it into my daily routine. Um, and so far it seems to work out pretty well for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I've, I've had my, my ups and downs with it. You know, we all make mistakes and I've made plenty of them, but, uh, you, the, the important thing is that you learn from it and you continue to improve yourself and, and learn and, and try and master your craft. Now your son 
recently got hired on with Orange County. Mm -hmm. um, I know that he was in the Marine Corps. How, how long was his enlistment? Uh, he's, he's been in five years. He's, he's a reserve right now. But he's been in five years, and I think he's going to re-up and continue to be a reservist while he's in the fire department. I, I've had a couple of conversations with him, and I, I can't recall what his education background is. Um, did he go into the Marine Corps right out of high school? Yeah. And then when he got out of the Marine Corps, he went to the fire academy and all that? Yep. And your advice to him, what, what was that like? My advice to him was do what you love doing. You know, he, he really didn't quite know. And, um, you know, he, I'm not even the one that, I never pushed him into the fire service. You know, he was around it. He, he loved the camaraderie. Uh, he loved pretty much everything that the Marine Corps gives you is the same kind of feeling and camaraderie that you get in the fire service. So uh, it, it didn't surprise me that he was naturally attracted to, to the Marine Corps. It also helped that um, one of our, our family friends, who's also a personal trainer, you know, was a career Marine, and, you know, and he always, he gave really good encouragement. And, you know, so he was a, a big influence on, on uh, my son as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I wasn't the one that pushed him. You know, what he just, he, I let him decide that on his own, uh, just like, you know, um, trying to get him into the uh, non-certified class at our department. He didn't really want to do that because he wanted to do everything on his own. So he went to fire standards on his own. I just stood back and, and, and let him do his thing because I just knew that it would mean more to him if he did it on his own than if I helped. So have you had any conversations with him as he talked to you about uh special the special ops program or oh yeah 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 he definitely he's already told me he wants to to do what i did you know but you know and i just told him i'm like i don't want you to do i don't want you to be me i want you to be you you know you can still do that but i want you to get out there and, and try all the stuff and see what you like you know and if uh if you still want to do special ops, then, then go for it. You know, I, I just, I want him, and he is his own person. I'm not telling him anything he doesn't know, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm very honored that he's, he's working, you know, and following in my footsteps. It's, that, that means a lot to me. I'm very proud of him. If, let's put this in, in a certain scenario, just say, say, God forbid, you were diagnosed with some kind of terminal illness and uh, you, were, you were in a position where you really needed to pass on as much as you could to him. What, what do you think the main thing you would stress to him would be? To be yourself. Don't try and be something that you're not, you know. Always improve yourself every single day, okay? You know, one of the things that, you know, I always tell these, the the new hires i i insist on teaching the new hires uh leadership uh just because i i want them to to have one one good class 
that's from the heart and, and means something and is and is a really good solid class. You know, and and, and I always end the class telling them uh, that be better than they were yesterday every day for the rest of their life. You know, and if you because I sat here and you know I think about that and a, a day that you don't improve yourself is a wasted day. You know, this isn't this isn't a an, an eight to five job where you go and you sit in a cubicle, you punch some computer keys and then you go home and you don't think twice about your job. It is to some people. Uh, it has never been that way for me. You know, don't get me wrong, I I really enjoy uh, my my time with my family and I've learned to separate it a lot, but this is uh, this is more than just just a job. This is you know, I don't want to sound cliche that it's it's a calling, but this is just something that, you know, this is just who I am. You know, it's, it's just something that I've always enjoyed. And, uh, you know, it feels good. And, and at the, you know, at the end, when, when my time is done, you know, I can look back on my life and my career. And, you know, for some people, I truly made a difference. And that's, you know, that's what's important. So over... Over the last few months, what's been your biggest obstacle to overcome and you know how how did you overcome it or how are you approaching that that obstacle? I guess my most recent obstacle is is just uh, accepting the fact that the uh, end of my career is is coming and uh, you know I've, I've been a machine I've I've worked a lot and and done a lot and and uh, now it's my biggest obstacle is trying to slow myself down and uh, you know prepare myself for the the shock of of leaving the fire service. Now I got I got some time before that happens, but um, you know I have a short amount of time to to pass on what I've learned and you know and try and influence you know the future of the department. As, as best as I can, you know, uh, Lieutenant Alligood, you know, that I taught leadership with, the one thing that he always talked about to the class is giving back, you know, because, you know, I've, I've had a, a really good career and, you know, a lot of good training, a lot of good calls, and I've worked with the best people you could possibly work with. So, you know, I'm very fortunate and I do want to give back and and pass on the stuff that I've learned. So the next generation, you know, as far, especially the special operations program, because, you know, I've been harping on everybody with me that we are short timers and that the guys that gave us this program, you know, entrusted us with it and we want to, you know, improve on it and, and make sure that it's, it's better than when we got it or when we passed it. One of the things that you said early on in the conversation, uh, kind of referenced mistakes, that sort of thing. Um, what do you think, you know, and it's, if you're comfortable talking about it, maybe one of your, your biggest, I don't want to say failure, but uh, well, maybe your biggest learning opportunity. And what, what lessons did you take from that? experience and uh you know how did it shape who you are today well i had i've had quite a few learning experiences 
as I've gone along, you know, uh, made some calls that, you know, I guess were, were the right calls in the end, but, you know, you still, still didn't feel like it, you know, and you got to deal with that kind of a stress as you go along. But, uh, you know, the one, the one that truly defined, in my opinion, who I am as a leader and shaped me into, you know, what I am right now is, uh, you know, it goes back to when uh, we ended up having an, an ax on, on one of our rescues and the station had an American flag and a Confederate flag painted on it. And that created a whole race thing. Um, and, you know, it was in the news and, and uh, eventually got half of the station transferred over it. Um, what makes it, what makes it my mistake is, is that I was, I was uh, one of the lieutenants at that station and, and the person, uh, the firefighter who did it was on my ship. And while there was no malintent on it, you know, we, we worked in a predominantly black neighborhood. So obviously common sense is that's not a very good thing to do. So there was a lot of emotions and that, that went through and, and uh, while he was not my direct employee, um, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And what I learned from that is actually um, from when I read, uh, I got this book, Extreme Ownership, which was written by Jocko Willink and Lee Fab and two Navy SEALs. I think they have a company, I think it's called like Echelon Front or something like that. They're They've got a bunch of books, but that book, Extreme Ownership, I always recommend that book in my leadership classes. And if you're a student of leadership like I am, I mean, that book is, you know, is really, really good. And it really opened my eyes about a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I took, I started thinking about that entire, that whole series of events that happened there and, and you know, the atmosphere leading up to it and, while I never knew that Axe was ever on the truck, one of the things that really kind of hit me like a sledgehammer to the face is that it was still my fault. And I take responsibility for that whole thing because as an officer at that station, I am responsible for everything that happens there. And where, where it's my fault is that I allowed that kind of an atmosphere in the station where anybody would think that that would be okay. So while I didn't do it, and had I known about it, I would have immediately had that corrected, you know, and then had a word with, you know, with, with my people about that. You, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but really evaluating that, there's a lot of soul searching and, and looking in the mirror. And what did, what did I do that helped create that? And uh, at some point, um, it was probably a little, little too lax. I mean, we had a, we had a great time at that firehouse. So it was one of our, one of the best times I've ever had in my career. And uh, great people, you know, a lot of young guys come to that station because it's one of our busiest. So we get a lot of young guys that are gung ho. They want to go and do it, you know. And, and you, it's real easy to get sucked into you know, just the, the whole atmosphere and, and having fun and all that stuff. And, and sometimes, um, you know, you, 
as a, as a leader, you kind of have to pull the reins back a little bit on that and just kind of define the lines. And uh, I probably failed to do that. So, which allowed that kind of uh, an event to happen. So, you know, when that happened is, you know, is pretty much felt like, you know, one of your best friends just died. You know, half of us got transferred out of there. One of the things that, that really helped me is, is I decided not to let that make me become bitter or anything because, it, you know, when I originally got transferred, yeah, I, I, would, I was taking some responsibility, but not to the level that I do now. So I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't really think that uh, it was my fault at the, at the time. So instead of being bitter about it, I just decided to, you know, make the best of it and, and do the best that I could at the, at the new squad that I went to. And there was a lot of personal growth during that time. How has that event helped you and your position now? When that happened, you know, I tried to keep everybody positive. You know, that was a, that was a morale killer if there ever was one. So it, uh, it got me thinking about everybody else, not worrying about, you know, woe is me or anything, trying to keep everybody positive let them know it's going to be okay, you know, tell them, keep everybody's focused on, on the future and bettering themselves and whatever happens happens, you know, you know, if we were allowed to ever go back is a different story, but, um, you know, I read that book, it opened up my eyes about a lot of things of how I used to, you know, I would look at things differently. And I also think that comes with age, obviously, you know, you're, you know, I've always been pretty young. I was hired when I was 21 for a brief period of time there. I think I was the youngest lieutenant in the fire department. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd probably been a lieutenant for maybe a good, good six, seven years when that happened. Uh, so it's not like I was a, a rookie lieutenant or anything. It was a pretty veteran mistake in my opinion. Uh, but I always preach that we're going to make mistakes but you got to learn from it. So I looked in the mirror, what can I do better? You know, the first thing you got to do is take responsibility for your actions or lack thereof, and then and learn from it, and then try and pass that on and influence the people around you. And uh, that's what I did. One of the things that um, I recently thought of that I think could be pretty valuable for, you know, new, new company officers, um, either in how they approach leadership, but also how they approach being a good follower is, you know, we all at some point in our careers have to work for somebody that's a micromanager. I think at some point in our career, if we are in a position of leadership, there comes a time where you actually have to be somewhat of a micromanager to particular individuals. Now, I'm not saying that that has to endure, but that to me, that method is reserved for very new, inexperienced people where you've got to teach them and and watch 
so that they don't, you know, especially in the fire service, they don't hurt themselves or anybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have a great deal of experience and a great deal of knowledge, sometimes more so than the person that is in charge of you, how, how do you, or, you know, how have you dealt with working for micromanagers and how have you avoided becoming one yourself? I think to a degree, everybody um, micromanages stuff, you know, you know, if you're a type A personality, you're, you're definitely one who likes to take control and, and people, and I've definitely worked for some people that like, they want things done their way and there is no other way. And which that's, you know, it takes some adjusting to that, but I think the biggest thing is, is consistency. Um, working for a micromanager, I think the, the best thing you can do is keep them informed. You know, communication is the foundation for, for anything, let alone leadership. Um, you know, don't think <clears throat> for one second that a senior firefighter can't lead. You know, they, they, if their lieutenant's a, a micromanager, the senior firefighter is just as important, if not, you know, more important because they're the informal leader of, of the rest of the crew. You know, and, and the thing is, is um, one of the things that I really grew into and learned from that whole experience was that I realized that even, even the micromanagers and the incompetent leaders of the world, most of them do not wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to get to work and be bad at my job, you know, and, and that was just, just that thought was kind of an eye opener for me. So, so they just don't know, you know, that they're, they are the way they are. That's just who they are, you know, and, and you have to work around it. Now, if they're not consistent with it, that's, that's a real problem. That's probably the, the worst kind of leader to work for is, is someone who's very inconsistent. Um, but as far as the micromanagers go, the more you keep them informed, the, the, the less they'll bother you, you know, you have to gain their trust. So, um, and I've made that mistake with, you know, with battalion chiefs where, you know, I definitely knew more than they did and they're brand new and they're trying to establish, you know, their position in the department. And, you know, they go around trying to chop heads off and, and that's just not the way to do it. Um, but when you're you're a little bit younger like i was you have a tendency to to butt heads with them because you know they're not going to treat my people like that in the end i learned that all the fighting that you do in the name of your people ends up hurting your people more which is which i found to be very ironic so as with age that i have learned um and from the best officers I've ever worked for, I always wondered how they were always just very relaxed and nonchalant about things. And and I'm I'm I think I'm to that point in my career now where I'm I'm kind of like that. And I think the road to that is you just have to what what really is important. 
you know, we complain in general about little things. You know, we complain about everything. Firefighters complain about everything. But a good leader, in my opinion, is going to focus everybody. You know, when they're all going off the handle, you have to bring everybody back in and say, hey, what's really the problem here? You know, has anything actually changed? Nothing's changed. You know, maybe somebody said something, they got their opinions out there and got everybody all mad. But has anything really changed? And it, does this really bother you? Does it really affect you? Okay, how is this going to affect you running your calls day to day? It doesn't. There's so much stuff that is outside of our control that we let bother us, um, that we lose sight of, of what is really important and the stuff that we can do something about anyways. So that was that's probably one of my my best lessons that I've learned in how to deal with that and deal with the micromanagers and stuff because, you know, I, I definitely did not keep my chief informed and, uh, you know, there was distrust. They're paranoid that you're, you're trying to cut their legs out from underneath them. Um, and that's just not the way to go. And by the time I realized what was happening and I tried to pull up and change everything, it was too late. The foundation had been laid, the distrust was there. And, you know, if you, if you studied leadership or, or, you know, Lencioni's dysfunctions of a team, you know, Lencioni's got a pyramid that shows communication is, is, is the bedrock of everything. But then the very next level is trust. You cannot have a successful team if you don't have trust. And, you know, I, I, that just, the, that whole team crumbled there. That, that was just bad. Since then, I've learned how to do it, and you know, and it's a lot easier to gain trust with people if you communicate and just let them know that you know what you're doing, and that you have your their back. You know, they will people will follow you if they know that you have their interests and that you have their back. It's that simple. One of uh, one of the lessons that I learned regarding leadership, uh, just in the fire service and and really on a a much more specific scale is you know comes from working with special operations how dynamic some of those scenes can be and when you're in this uh decision making cycle say a very dynamic situation a call that you've never ran before you know the particular uh, that particular scenario, whether it be a hazardous materials event or, you know, uh, a really bad uh, extrication. There's your cookie cutter extrications, but there's so many more complex events. If you've got a vehicle hanging over an embankment or an underride, or you've got a car up underneath a tractor trailer. When, when you're making those decisions, you're operating off of past experiences, what worked, but something that, and, and I, I know that you were one of the people that taught it to me and ask it. He was the first one that actually walked me through this, uh, this thought process when establishing your, your decision-making cycle, you're first going to implement, an action based on your past experiences. 
but you've got to have a backup plan if that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then a backup plan to the backup plan, a plan A, B, C, D, E. To me, that is, that is a mindset of there is no failure. There, there is no mistake that's too big to overcome. There is only action until the job is done. When, when I applied that to how I think about leadership and just how I approach things, how I've approached my failures, it, it was, it had a pretty profound effect on me. And I, and I know that a lot of the guys that I've worked with in, in special operations just have a really, really sound approach to leadership. I, I, some of the best leaders that I've worked with have come out of special operations. Not to say that I haven't worked with really great leaders that weren't in special operations, just seems like there's a really high concentration uh, in that group of people. One thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, I know of quite a few of your calls, but um, you've got extensive experience and, and I was wondering if maybe you'd uh, be willing to share you know, maybe one of your most difficult calls, technically and, you know, just personally. Probably one of the, uh, this is a really good, this was a really good technical call as far as just trying to get everything uh, square. There's been a couple of them, you know, like extrications really stick out of my head. You know, I had one extrication where a vehicle's on its side against a, a palm tree. And during the rollover, the door opened, the patient's leg came out of the, and, and then the door closed on the leg, on the ankle, and like, and like, like actually locked. So it's on, it's, it's, it is on the driver's side, which is, which the ankle is sticking out, you know, and it was, how do we, you know, how do we get this, this patient out of this vehicle? So that was one of those, those calls where I went through about six different plans because nothing was seeming to work. You know, the original plan was to stick some spreaders in the door is to stabilize the vehicle uh, with some paratex and whatnot and literally spread the door open with the cutters, which would lift the car. With the cutters or? The... With the cutters, which would essentially lift the car with the cutters, but spread the door at the same time to be able to get the ankle out. Now, for one reason or another, it wasn't working. So then we went through another plan. Um, and I, I don't really recall all the steps that we went to. We tried digging underneath. We tried using low pressure airbags to lift the car up, up in the air so then we could spread the door. Um, and I just remember what eventually worked was we went back to the original plan of spreading the door. And then that worked. So, you know, one of the, the points that I always, with that story is that you just always have a backup plan, but never really scrap a plan completely because something you may have done all along the line might have changed conditions for one of the other previous plans to work. So it still counts as having a backup to the backup to the backup. Um, other than that, the, uh, you know, one of the more recent ones that we had, we had a uh, a bus 
you know, one of those uh, buses that transports people, you know, from parking to the airport. Um, it was a double underride on a semi. I guess there was a car that kind of ran the bus off the road and the bus hit an SUV and both the bus and the SUV um, went underneath the semi that was sitting there at the red light. Fortunately, the person in the, uh, in the SUV actually got out on in, you know, well, they were injured, but they weren't. It was amazing because if there was a passenger, they would have been killed. Uh, but the driver got out on his own. And then uh, we only had the bus driver who was heavily entrapped underneath the semi. And you know, in these types of buses, there's no dashboard. It's literally six inches of plastic and the windshield and a steering wheel. And so he took a massive hit. And uh, I just remember he was, you know, hanging off the side of the chair and people were holding him up with a two by four. And, you know, so right off the bat, you know, we had our truck company with us. You know, I told them to set up a low pressure airbag literally just to put underneath him so he, we could support him while I, you know, me and my crew worked on the other side to, to, to cut him out of there. And, and that was cutting him free out of that thing was exactly like doing surgery. I mean, it was probably one of the most technical extrications I've ever done where, you know, we literally, we had a couple spreaders going and, you know, we would, you know, we, I, I do know that I did spread one area and then left it in place and then put spreaders around, literally around his foot and then, and then spread it and cut. And it took us, we actually got him out pretty quick. I think we got him out about 30 minutes, which for, for the amount of entrapment that we had on him, it was pretty good. And, you know, uh, good experience, good learning, um, good, good extrication in general, as far as, as everybody worked well and the scene went well and we got into the hospital and not only did he end up making it, uh, he was severely hurt, but, uh, just recently this, uh, last year, I believe, um, he finally reached out to us and we had a, a, a nice reunion at the station. And he was able to stand on his own. I mean, his legs were almost completely cut off. And uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was really uh, it was emotional. I mean, you know, I got to speak with him when we were doing this, and and the, I think this was four years ago was this extrication. And in that period of time, he had found out that he had a a, a kid that he never even knew about that he was reunited with, and and ended up you know getting married and. You know, and uh, you just hear about the life that people have after. We don't usually ever have that kind of, uh, not even closure, but just information or insight on, on what happens after our, our calls. We just go from one call to another and it's never personal. But when you find out, you know, what kind of an effect that you had on, on a person's life, you know, that, man, that makes you feel really, really good. Yeah. So that was that was probably one of the more technical ones that I've ever had. I, I recently, actually, it was last night. I had Chief Gott on uh, on the podcast recorded last night, and um, we we discussed his time in the fire service. You know, he served thirty plus years, and you know, we we talked a little bit about PTSD and. And that sort of thing. I mean, 
you know, the cumulative effect of running all these traumatic calls can, can affect, you know, sleep patterns, uh, how we operate on a daily basis. And one of the things that always struck me about you, I mean, you're, you're hardcore, man. I, I, (laughs) there's not too many people that, I, I mean, there's a handful of you guys that work more than anybody else. And you've had some of the most incredible calls that, that I know of. And I know it's got to affect you. But of course. You, you carry yourself in such a stoic fashion. Um, I, I just was wondering how you, how you cope personally, how you keep yourself... Uh, on an even plane. I always talked about it with the crews. Um, you know, there there's certain there's some some calls that that bother you. Like, uh, you know, there I I kind of briefly touched on it earlier in the interview. But uh, one of the calls that I use as an example um, in my leadership class, you know, just to, you know, I I do share, you know, my personal experiences and good and bad with the class I mean it's no nonsense you know it's it's real and um, you know I had an extrication where you know two young girls were were broadsided you know t-bone on the driver's side door about 24 inches of intrusion on the driver's side and um, you know I had two different paramedics feel for pulse on the driver and she had no pulse her um, the other occupant was a an, another young her young friend, and she was unconscious, laying on top of the driver. So we had access to her. We got her out, and I had, uh, you know, with the amount of entrapment on her, you know, we had just just called her. You know, there was, you know, she was already uh, coded at that point. So, um, and we, after we had done that, I guess. You know, at the time she was 21, so they stuck a, a monitor, you know, the honor, and and she had a rhythm because, you know, she has a 21-year-old heart who doesn't really know what happened to her yet. So after command was taken from me um, by the chief, he decided to we're going to cut cut her out of the car. So uh, myself and uh, another lieutenant we cut the door off, and I was as soon as I took a real good look at that door. I was super angry because it was so easy to cut the door off. Um, so we cut the door off. We got her out in probably about 90 seconds. You know, we worked her, but uh, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't know her. Her neck ended up being broken, and uh, I had no idea her neck was broken like badly, for like, you know, 10 years. So. And I never knew at that time. And all I know is, is that while I know I made the right decision as far as there was nothing that we were going to do that was going to save her life. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that I didn't try. At that time, my sister was 21 years old. And, uh, and when you start reflecting on things like that, you're like, you know, if that's my sister in that car, I would have wanted them to try. And I didn't do it. And I, that was a massive failure on my part. And, uh, 
that that hurt for a long, long time. Weeks. I struggled that with that one. Just, you know, you know, I wanted to convince myself that I made the right decision, but it didn't feel like it. You know, we talk about stress and there isn't any classes you're ever going to take that's going to tell you how to deal with making decisions, you know, when people, you know, live and die and stuff. So, uh, you know, and I still get emotional when I talk about that, especially in front of the class. Um, but then just, you know, within the last year or two, you know, my one fireman who was actually in the backseat with him, so her neck was broken very badly and that there's nothing that we were going to do. And so I'm like, well, <laughs> I was like, still doesn't make it feel any better. You know, still didn't try. But the thing, like I said earlier, is I've learned from that. I learned from it that, that minute. And never again will I never try, you know, or, or not try. But, uh, you know, those things, those things stay with you, you know. And, uh, yeah, and there's, I've seen a whole lot of stuff. Um, I've been very fortunate that I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, pediatric death. So, you know, that's, that's, that helps tremendously. But at some point, you know that, you know that you're, you're kind of screwed up in the head a little bit. So my recommendation is, is just, you know, if it gets to a point where you're having a real hard time with it, you got to talk about it with somebody. Um, while sometimes I don't really go crazy um, or, or feel like I need to talk about a whole lot of stuff, you know, there's stuff I'll, if I see a movie or something, I start getting choked up, then, you know, I'll, you know, I'll just allow myself to just let that pressure go, you know. I just, I, I don't like building, letting it build up. Um, but, but some people also, they, they want to, uh, if they can't handle it, they need to go talk to somebody. There's no, doesn't make you weak or anything. You need to go and talk to somebody professional. How would you approach it as a, uh, a company officer? What recommendation would you give company officers or other battalion chiefs? So I, I know the process with Orange County, but if you are incident command of a call that is very traumatic and you can see that it affects the crew, how do you, um, how do you approach that with the people on the scene? Uh, the first thing that you have to be able to do is, is take in the whole scene. You need to stand back. You know, sometimes it's a conscious decision. It's a con conscious effort that you have to do. You step back from it. You look at everything, you look at how you, you pay attention to how people are reacting, what kind of a, you know, are they working on, are they working hard, who's in the middle of, you know, who's dealing with the patient or, or, or the really bad part. Um, and then, you know, I, 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 I want my officers to know their people. So there have been several calls where I've had newer people, you know, in the middle, in, sitting in a car full of blood, and, you know, they're just splattered everywhere. And, uh, you know, I go up to the officers and I'm like, I need you to kind of just keep an eye on this person. If they say anything, you know, um, depending on the, the level of trauma, of, you know, and emotionally, I may just not even, I, I'll just, if I even hear any kind of comment that says something that there might not be something right, I'll automatically call for our, our critical, you know, debriefing team, you know, and then sometimes 
you just have to take matters into your own hands just because we're going to try and be tough. You know, we don't want to be seen as weak. Um, we actually had, actually had one of my crews um, several months ago shot at. You know, they, they did a, a well-being check, which everybody in the country goes to these things all the time. And it was just a perfect storm. The daughter was there, says she knows her mother is there. She's got a big medical history. Um, the door's locked, her phone's not on, you know, and you have my permission to go in and check on her. So they, they looked around and they were able to climb in through a window. And the lady is there. She has her phone off. She's pretty much deaf, does not have her hearing aids in. And she has a gun. And all she sees is two young guys standing in her, her house, which, by the way, is in the middle of a very bad neighborhood. So um, she actually fired three shots at them and actually held our brand new, had like a week on the job probie at gunpoint for a couple seconds. Fortunately, she had to go plug her phone and turn, turn her phone off to go call 911 that they've got home invaders and he was able to dive out the window. So we are really, really lucky on that one. And, uh, you know, none of them wanted to go home. And I'm like, well, that's not your call. I was like, you guys are going home because I know that your, your head's not going to be in the game. You think it's going to be fine, but what's going to happen? You're going to sit there and start thinking when you're sitting by yourself and then, you know, that's where, that's where it really starts to sink in, you know, so you don't even, don't even let your people, don't put it in, in their plate to decide, decide for them. If you think for one second that their head's not going to be in the game, they're a liability now. And the chances of them getting hurt increase dramatically. So our job as, as a chief or a lieutenant is to make sure that our people go home every single day. You know, and if there's anything that's going to possibly put that in jeopardy, then you need to make a decision and uh, and and get them help or or relieve them of duty. That's awesome. I I was not aware of that incident. <laughs> that's yeah, pretty. Yeah, that's man. pretty intense. Yeah, I had no idea why I was dispatched to that call. No clue whatsoever. And then when I realized what was going on, you know, obviously that's a sledgehammer to the face. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just recalling some of the, the calls that I've been on and um, never been, never been shot at. <laughs> yeah. I've been shot at, but not that, that, that close. <laughs> been on some pretty sketchy scenes, you know, guns and all that, but. And nobody's ever shot at me. <laughs> Thank God. Well, I, I can't imagine being a, a, a brand new firefighter with a week on the department. Well, at least out in the field. You know, it's week or two. It was his first or second week in the field. And to have a gun pointed at you from five feet. Yeah. It's very scary. Good thing she wasn't a good shot. Yes. Yes. She was mostly blind, too. Can you think of anything that that you would like to share with with whoever's listening that could help them in their career 
whether it's fire service, law enforcement, or in the private sector, just regarding leadership or, you know, personal leadership, self-leadership. I would say if you want the respect of your people and you want to be a good leader, you know, be honest, be consistent, and, and let your people work for you. You know, let, when, when I say that, you know, don't, don't be that micromanager, you know, have a goal in mind and, and figure out what is the end result. Okay. What, what is, what, what is the goal of what we're doing here and hand that goal to your officers and let them do their job and work for you. If you sit there and tell everybody how to do everything, you're just doing it your way, but the uh, amount of creativity and, uh, and intelligence and ingenuity that your people can come up with that you would have never thought of um, will just, not only will it make uh, the, the call go better, you know, it's, it's not about making you look good, it's about, it's about the people that we're serving and it's about preparing your people. Anytime, you know, my crews did a good job, you know, and they give me accolades because I'm the officer. I'm like, it's not me, it's them. Okay, never take that. Always give it to them. And anytime, you know, they're getting criticized or they're getting blamed for something, you take it away from them, okay? It should be a burden to be an officer, not, not, not having them, not you're in charge of them. It should be a burden. And, and you do everything in your power to take care of your people, okay? Um, at the same time, you have to be fair. So, and when I say being fair, when we make our mistakes, you hold your people accountable for it as well as yourself. You know, otherwise we're not going to learn anything. You know, it's kind of like half the problems we have going on with society right now is that whole everybody gets a trophy concept. It, it doesn't really work that well. You know, it means more to people when you earn something. Um, you personally grow more if you make mistakes and learn from them. And the only way you're going to do that is by taking accountability for your actions. So while our job is there to protect them, it's also there to make them grow. And sometimes you have to make unpopular decisions, you know, and hold your people accountable. And they, you know, they may not be happy about it, you know, in, you know, immediately, but I think later on down the road, as like your children do, they kind of grow and, and respect you for it and understand why you had to do what you have to do. Um, but you just have, if, if you have heart and you care about them, you can't, you can't BS your way through that. People will see through it. And if you do that, I think you're going to be just fine. I've found that um, to be effective, it's not a matter of acting like you care. You have to genuinely care about your people. Right. And you, you have to get to know them, which goes back to your point about communication. The only mm -hmm. way to get to know your people is to, to talk to them, but listen more than you actually talk, you know? Right. And so, I really appreciate you letting me interview you this this was really, this was a really good conversation. No problem. Um, I, 
also your book recommendation, Extreme Ownership. Um, on my website, I have a reading list. Um, I update it regularly, so I'm continuously reading. And I, I get people recommending books, but that book is on the reading list. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they wrote the dichotomy of leadership. That's on the list as well. Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, take a look at at that reading list and see if you've got anything that you'd like to add to it. Yeah, we'll do. All right, cool, man. Well, again, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.